Hello, and welcome to the 10th episode of The Sulfuric Secrets, a podcast from between two worlds. The Sulfuric Secrets is a work of fictional non-fiction, and tells the story over hundreds of years, reinterpreting real-life events, people, and places. Today, we return to Los Angeles and the Holy Wood, an area where so much more than the magic of movie-making takes place. Today, we look at some of the other magic in the area, both light and dark. Episode 10 of The Sulfuric Secrets is called The Unholy Wood. Please be advised that this episode contains mature content that might not be appropriate for all audiences. It was a cold, overcast morning on January 15th, 1947, in the middle of the working-class suburb of Limart Park, just 15 kilometers northeast of Arroyo Seco, where the Jet Propulsion Lab had originally experimented with the black powder. Betty Bersinger was in a phone booth, panicked and trying to describe to the police what she had just seen and what she had failed to prevent her three-year-old daughter from seeing. The naked upper half of Elizabeth Short's body was lying face up with the arms raised above her head at 45 degree angles and her mouth slashed ear to ear in a Glasgow smile. The lower half of her body was half a meter away from the top half. The legs were splayed wide open with chunks of flesh carved from her body with one inserted into her genitals. Her intestines were placed under her buttocks as a pillow. Both halves were drained of all blood, washed completely clean beforehand. The bright limelights that lit Los Angeles became flashlights inspecting every nook and cranny of the city's imagination as more than 50 male and female suspects were interviewed, multiple subjects confessed to the crime, and theories and cash-ins popped out of the Hollywood skin like a fungus. This was the Black Dahlia case. Multiple bars insisted that their special joint was the last one short visited before her demise. Most egregious was the Los Angeles Examiner, first using their police connections to squeeze pertinent details of the case, and then flying Elizabeth Short's mother to Los Angeles on the pretense of winning a beauty contest, before surprising her with the news of her daughter's death in front of their gaggle of journalists and flashing cameras. The precise separation of Short's body into two pieces was a difficult surgical technique known as a hemicorporectomy, leading to theories like those of homicide detective Steve Hodel, positing that his physician father was the murderer. Like the sulfuric secrets itself, crime writer James Elroy's 1987 novel, The Black Dahlia, mixed both fact and fiction, 
As Elroy remarked on the case, it's never going to be solved because it was not meant to be solved. Beyond the many banal and lazy conclusions of a lover's dispute gone wrong, a bad hitchhiking experience, or secret sex work, lies huge question marks around the medical-like precision of the killer, the time and resources required to carve, clean, and cart a body under the light of the moon, and most importantly, the ritualistic nature of the crime. The crime was meant to be seen, which is what makes it so confusing that it was not meant to be solved. And so, today's sulfuric secret is why. In 1934, Alistair Crowley's Church of Thelema expanded into the United States with the Agape Lodge, founded by Wilfred Talbot Smith. In 1941, Jack Parsons, one of the founders of the Jet Propulsion Lab, joined this lodge, and by 1943, under the instruction of Crowley, Parsons took over as a superior officer of Agape Lodge. And so, when Madame Lumen arrived at the new iteration of Agape Lodge at Parsons' 11-bedroom mansion on 1003, South Orange Grove Avenue in Pasadena's Millionaire's Row, an itch was scratched that Madame Lumen never realized she had. During the golden age of Hollywood, film director Eric von Stroheim had accumulated a legendary status for his film's orgy scenes that were too raunchy for a town already legendary for its back-to-back petting parties and group sexcapades. And, in the 1960s, the hippie movement would espouse virtues of collectivism, free love, tolerance, acceptance, and the pursuit of your true purpose in life, regardless of the restrictions of an uptight, parochial system. And so, residing in the middle days of the Holy Wood in the 1940s, this unimaginable world of Agape Lodge was both an homage to a grander past and a vision of a better future. It seemed that Parsons, in leading these escapades of sexual largesse, was imbued by the primal energy of a forgotten mystic empire. Madame Lumen had always needed to hide her gift and her personal inclinations. And so, arriving in a strange new town and being offered a place to stay was far less impactful than being conceived on a strange planet named Earth without knowing her true self and finally being offered a place to be. Madame Lumen's addition to the household was one that fit comfortably considering its history of polyamory. But by this point, Parsons was in decline. L. Ron Hubbard, the eventual founder of Scientology, had recently taken $50,000 of Jack's money and his wife, Betty Northrup. Madame Lumen's addition immediately followed another notable inclusion in January of that year. Marjorie Cameron, a star of the films of Kenneth Anger and eventual second wife of Parsons. And the months continued to tick away. Madame Lumen was in Los Angeles for a reason 
and was starting to lose hope of finding her close companion, Margaret Olson. Every sanitarium in the Los Angeles County had been checked. And so, as hope began to fade, and her trust in Marjorie Cameron and Jack Parsons began to increase, she revealed the real reason she was in the area. Parsons innately knew the connection that magic can create between people and felt compelled to help her find Mudbelt Maggie. At the very least, his military connections through the Jet Propulsion Lab might be able to lend some investigative prowess. And so it was that Parsons began getting the attention of all the wrong people for all the wrong reasons. At this point, the FBI were already investigating Parsons. Enough documentation to fill 71 pages. Surprisingly, not so much his involvement in a religious cult believed to advocate sexual perversion, as they called it, but due to his association with various communist groups at Caltech, this was a serious issue at the time, and one of Parsons' rocket scientist associates, Dr. Frank Molina, had amassed over 300 pages of FBI documentation due to his communist associations. It was only a matter of time of asking about Mudbelt Maggie that Parsons would draw the wrong planet into his orbit, and in a lifetime of making powerful enemies, his most powerful enemy, Desmond Lynch. Desmond Lynch approached Jack as a friend, of course, and over a series of afternoons in 1947, the two men mutually changed one another's lives in very different ways. Lynch really wished he could help with Jack's friend. What was her name? Marge? Yes. Yes. He'd definitely look into it. Lynch had built a rapport with Parsons, baiting him expertly to reveal more and more information over time. Eventually, Parsons told Lynch about his pursuit of Babylon working. This ritual was designed to bring about a homunculus, an entirely artificial being produced through sex magic who would bring about the new age. From their conversation, it seemed clear that Parsons was convinced that Marjorie Cameron was the homunculus. Lynch wasn't convinced, however. Parsons' utopic dream of a world guided by individual liberty and free love was laughable. But as they continued to talk, it was clear that the basic concept of Babylon working aligned with another ridiculous story he had heard many years before, the ritual of the copper basement. Suddenly, a number of thoughts in Lynch's head stopped seeming so ridiculous, and other ideas began to galvanize. Many were surprised by Jack Parsons' death in 1952 mainly because one of the world's leading experts in explosive materials had been careless enough to drop a highly volatile compound of fulminate of mercury in his garage laboratory. Of particular suspicion was the presence of a morphine-filled syringe in the garage and that the explosion originated from underneath the floorboards. Lynch played off the job as a favour to Earl Kinnett, the ex-captain of the LAPD who Parsons' testimony had put in jail. Lynch had also gained respect with the right people, 
particularly those who were worried about Parsons' association with communist circles and the occult. But Lynch's true motives stayed close to his chest because his time with Parsons had led him to believe the ridiculous story of the ritual of the copper basement and he was now beginning to see how other interests of his could align with this potential opportunity. In 1947, Ralph Astell was a 26-year-old LAPD detective who was on loan from a nearby district specifically for the Black Dahlia case. Asdell had been alerted to the existence of the Thin Man, spotted by a local at 9pm in Limart Park on January 14th, the night of the murder. The Thin Man was identified as in his mid-40s, medium height, wearing a tan top coat and dark hat pulled low, driving a light-coloured 1935 sedan and acting strangely. The thin man was startled by the witness's presence initially, so he scoped him out in his car and then hurriedly left the scene, leaving scorched rubber imprints and the loud sound of grinding shift gears resonating in the area. Asdell's wife said that being unable to bring the thin man to justice was a regret that haunted her husband for his entire life. Asdell had brought into the police station a local restaurant worker who he was convinced was the thin man. He described it as, Sometimes the good Lord gets you these feelings or hunches. You get the hair standing up on the back of your neck, whether it's a routine traffic stop or whatever. His superiors weren't as convinced and rejected the report based on a lack of evidence. The higher intelligence that was Asdell's intuition had served him correctly, however. It was just his rational mind that had missed the final step. Unfortunately, the restaurant worker was not the thin man. But Asdell's hairs rightly stood on end because the thin man was very close. He was in the LAPD at the time, letting their police chief know that the military would handle the Black Dahlia case. The Black Dahlia was not unique. Many have noticed the startling similarities in the Cleveland torso murders from 1935 to 1938. The killer, or killers, still being unknown. The 20 plus bodies were also mutilated drained of blood, cleaned, prepped, posed, and likely killed in a different location. The head was also typically the point of death. The Black Dahlia from hemorrhaging from the Glasgow smile carved into her face. And a number of Cleveland torso murders from decapitation, an unbelievably rare and difficult thing to do. The level of precision in both sets of murders bordered on the medical Elliot Ness, the subject of the film The Untouchables, and famous for his relentless, single-minded pursuit of Al Capone, was brought onto the Cleveland Torso Murders case. But this famous single-mindedness might have also inadvertently 
railroaded the investigation into a single killer theory. As Ness said, The same guy did them all. Too much similarity to be coincidental. The expert hand with a knife. Bodies all cleaned up and neat. I can't tell you why he kills women one way and men another. But it's the same man, I guarantee you. But the Black Dahlia and Cleveland torso murders were not meant to be solved. And such a precise, calculated crime couldn't have been one of passion or committed alone. They were practice for something much larger. At its core, the military has a singular purpose. To train to kill. The collateral effects can be seen by how many serial killers went through their ranks. Jeffrey Dahmer served as a medical specialist and combat medic. Dean Call and Arthur Shawcross were both drafted into the US military. John Allen Williams served in both the Louisiana National Guard and US Army. Russell Williams was a colonel in the Canadian Armed Forces. Dennis Rader, aka the BTK killer, was a staff sergeant in the Air Force. Charles Ng was previously in the Marines. Timothy McVeigh was a Gulf War veteran. David Parker Ray, aka the Toy Box Killer, was honorably discharged from the military following high school. And David Berkowitz, aka the Son of Sam, also served in the military. Now it should go without saying, the majority of veterans don't end up in serial killing and are productive, non-violent members of society. But there is the odd exception. The most notable one being the Thin Man. Or, as he was known to his fellow soldiers, Colonel Desmond Lynch. You've just listened to episode 10 of The Sulfuric Secrets. I can promise you that there are plenty more surprises before we reach the rapidly approaching finish line for season 1. It's the classic thinking of chaos theory, or, as Ashton Kutcher fans might like to call it, the butterfly effect. We might only see the effects of an action after a long time, sometimes years, sometimes hundreds of years. As before, major research sources will be posted on Anchor and YouTube, and I'm also building a website for the series that will have full transcripts and a full source list. Also, feel free to show the love on Patreon if you like the work that I'm doing, and feel free to say hi on Instagram and Twitter. Until then, thank you, and good night.